I've never really been able to get my head around the fact that another being would come into the world because of me, but also that being would suffer. And that's really, really hard. Because it would, it would experience joy as well. And I love joy. But it would also experience suffering. There's no way to get around it. Yeah. If you come to this world, you're going to suffer. It's part of life. It's part of it. Yeah. It's part of it. So yeah. you've, you've, you've actually then consciously created someone's suffering. The only question then is, is the joy that thing you've created going to outweigh the potential suffering? Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with James. Hello James. Hey Dave. (laughs) It's always funny the introduction of guests because we were literally talking up to when I replaced record but now I'm like saying hello as if uh, I haven't already done that. Um, but yeah, hello again. So the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? I know you through Paula, really, who's my flatmate. And the first time I met you was at a night you run called Spark, which is just over the road from me because I, uh, I live in Hackney, just uh, behind the town hall and the Hackney Picture House at the top floor in the attic. There's a night called Spark and uh, you host it. That's right. And uh, I'm not really a storyteller. I'm more of a comedian. But I showed up with Paula one night because she said that the night was worth watching. Uh, And I did what was sort of a story, but more comedy within (laughs) that context. But it felt good to be on stage again because I just got to London and I I wasn't really getting any stage time. And we had a little chat then. And then you came to see the Nevermind the Full Stop show, which is now retitled Poetry Goes Pop. And uh, yeah, and then you invited me to come and do stand-up tragedy. Yeah, that's right. And we've had a few chats. Yeah, I mean, along I, the way. for me, for me, it's like the it's it's always interesting to me that like every time I meet up with you, it feels like we just had, go straight into big conversations. Partly, I, I suspect that's part of both of our natures, maybe. But but I don't find that happens with everyone. So it's interesting. A, a couple of times when I've been over to Paula's house to record her for this show or like to, to be on her podcast we've met then and, and it's just been like straight into like these big big conversations and uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to today the second question that I ask everybody is what do you do now what do I do first thing that came into my head was I've just finished writing a novel which I worked on for the last three years so I'm in the post-novel period. Right. Or the, or the, I mean, I've written a few books before, but they were unpublishable. But this one has been always written with publication in mind, which doesn't mean that it's going to get published, but it means that it is. it has been written as a kind of product to, to be sold or to try and create a market for its own purchase. So I'm doing that, but my income is mainly through translation, and editing and I also work as a tour guide in the season I don't make any real kind of distinction between creative stuff and stuff I do for money it's not it's not a particularly I know that a lot of people feel that it's really important to introduce themselves as a writer or an artist or something like that but if I'm at a party I will generally introduce myself as a translator or an editor because I find people are more 
they will tell me more about themselves rather than asking me questions about myself. Ah, right. If you know that's what I mean. And that's actually for a writer and a comedian, it's much more useful to find out things about other people because I know I'm a writer and a comedian. Right. I, I just want to carry on doing it. Right. And we all know what writers and comedians are like because most of the art that we see is like about writers or comedians, it seems. So, yeah, you're right. It's much more useful to find out what a nurse is. Exactly. Uh, yeah. When I was... Um, I had a screenplay produced last year for a short film and the director proposed to me that we make the main character a writer I'd made him a DJ and I was like no <laughs> he's not being a writer right because first of all if I make it a writer everyone will say is the script about you directly which of course it is but it's not about my personal situation in that way and uh, and also it's 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 such a cliche exactly as you say yeah you know the protagonist the the, the hero writer well, yeah, although it's a, it's a kind of contradiction, though, isn't it? Because they say right about what you know, and the, yeah. the irony is all writers definitely know what it's like to be a self-obsessed writer. Sure. Um, and so like, that's part of the reason that we end up with so many things about self-obsessed writers. And then there's all of these kind of other questions as well. Now, I think, there's much more talk in, in culture about if we have the right to tell other people's stories as well. Mm. There's this whole kind of thing of like, you know, history's been written by people like us, like white men. Um, Mm. And, you know, it's not necessary for us to tell other people's stories. But then at the same time, if we don't tell other people's stories, since we have the mic, Mm. uh, those stories don't get told. And so it's a real, Mm. uh, like, it's it's a, it's a, there's a lot to think about, I think, in terms of that sort of stuff now. Yeah, I mean, I often feel like I'm sort of, I'm, I'm thinking a lot more about the ethics of everything that I write or do than I used to. And in some ways, I think that's a good thing. But in some ways, man, I, I, I loved the days when I didn't think about that stuff and could just write whatever and not worry about mm. what that would be. You know, The first jumping off point, I guess, is, is, is the, the, the village in the morning that you're currently working on. Yeah. Um, and that's interesting to me as well, because I, I think... I know the director because I think that on Facebook I've seen that the, they're a mutual acquaintance. I think. Yeah, I mean that's done. I mean yeah. that's that's that had its premiere a few weeks ago. Right, so, I saw all of that happening. So that was why I was wearing my best shoes <laughs> on Facebook prominently. <laughs> I, I did ask the the uh, there was photos at the premiere, so I asked the um, director if I could use them for my online dating profile. <laughs> so I had to get permission from everybody. So that so if for those of you who've seen me already on OK Cupid, the uh, you've already. <laughs> seen the second photo uh, not the first one because it doesn't actually look the best of the photos but it's just the fact that it's taken at the premiere for a film I wrote <laughs> um, yeah well I mean that was as I think this this is something which which might interest you as well that was a film a script which I wrote last year so it's had a kind of remarkable turnaround to get to the screen in such a short period of time uh, I wrote it in uh, I think February last year and it was produced it was the premiere was in December so that it's a short film and it was became much shorter in the in the writing the original draft was longer than it was cut down cut down cut down and it's about kind of anxiety around having children that's the main theme of the film and the two main characters the first character the one who is a DJ he remained a DJ that made it to the cut he um he's kind of run away from a family situation with a young child because he can't deal with the the pressure really uh, it's not made too explicit because it's a, a very short film and then he meets a guy called Jakob who um, is childless not by choice his wife died uh, although it's not entirely uh, clear whether it was deliberate or not 
um, that they didn't have kids. So it's and it and it puts these characters together, but then it uses a kind of horror story to explore anxiety about children, which is something I'm. Uh, I wouldn't say I suffer from much anxiety about having children because uh, I don't have any children, not that I know of anyway. But it's certainly men and children and masculinity in children is an area which I find very complex and very very interesting and also a, a little bit under talked about I think mm, I, I, I'd agree with that in lots of ways yeah a lot of the writing a lot of the things that focus on the relationship between children and, and parents tends to tends to be about mothers and and, 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 mm. and children or bad fathers yeah like you get a lot of bad fathers yeah but you don't get very many kind of Either you don't get that me- you don't get that many good fathers, or like at least ringing true good fathers to me. You get like cliche good, yeah, um, and you get bad fathers, but you don't get kind of you know ambivalent, complicated. Like you know, even it's not even about fatherhood, is it? It's also about like the decision to become a father, or the mm. or the decision like, and that's that's definitely an interesting area as well because that's a decision that's in some ways is taken away from from men, which is not to say I'm not say, I'm not you know I'm not. I'm I'm pro-choice. I absolutely think that people should be responsible for their actions. You mm. have sex. There's a there's there's a chance you'll you'll can you'll you'll uh, make someone pregnant. Then you have to mm. stand by that person. I'm not not knocking that, but you can't choose as a man to to like if you do if you are pro-choice and there's no real way that you can. Uh, thankfully, we don't have a state that kind of uh, completely and utterly pushes men's views onto women's uh, fertility. Although. Uh, there is a lot of pressure on women's fertility, but like you, that's so that's why I. I mean, I don't know if you know this about me, but that's why I chose to have a vasectomy was because of the fact that I, we had me and my partner had a pregnancy scare, and I realised that she she might she she probably wouldn't choose to have a child, mm. but if she did choose to have a child, I would have no control over that. So the only thing I can do if I want to her to have the freedom to choose and me to have the freedom to choose is to take responsibility for that. Mm. For me, that was getting a, getting a, getting an operation that means that I don't have to worry about that ever again. So I Mm. guess that was my approach to the anxiety around, around not wanting to have kids. So what do you do if you change your mind? Well, because uh, you can uh, get it reversed, can't you? But it doesn't always work. Some of them you can, um, and it doesn't always work. With my one, it's like it's 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 a couple of inches of vast tubes removed. So that means that it's actually much harder to to sort out again. It's not like mm. tied tubes; it's mm. like absent tubes. So mm. I think you have to get tubes from mm. your, I don't know your, your your ankle or something, and 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 try and try and sort of stick them into it. So you must have been fairly secure in your own mind that you you didn't want kids yeah it was, yeah. yeah fully, fully. Yeah. yeah i mean do you want kids uh well i think that's one of the reasons i wrote the script i i i don't really want kids um but i i also kind of want to be in the position to make the decision in a different way than i could now because i'm i'm pretty skin and kind of struggling right. so it's also about the conditions I, I'm not going to say that I don't because I've changed my mind about so many different things in my life. But the 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 point I come to with the kids thing is always the it, the excuse that oh well we won't have money or we won't have this or so, which I just started with. That seems to me fairly relevant because if a 
kid turns up and you love the kid, you will make, you will find a way to make it work. Right. Uh, if you're an artist or whatever, I, I, don't, I think that's a really false choice uh, between art and a child on one side, you know, right. on opposite sides. I think, these, you know, you can find as many examples of really amazing artists who had loads of kids and right. you can find examples of artists who deliberately or not deliberately didn't. Now, most of the people who were in the church over its history didn't really have children, but that's that's a different uh, equation, I think. But what I struggle with is just the philosophical implications of bringing somebody else into the world. Right. Because that, if you don't... And I, I really don't understand why this isn't the aspect of it we talk about first, as opposed to the aspect of... It seems like it's being offered as like some end to unlimited lifestyle choices, which is not true because you don't have unlimited li- lifestyle choices if you're childless or if you have a child. Right. It's just, it's just a false axiom. We don't live in this condition of unlimited freedom, which ends the moment a kid turns up. But the philosophical implications of there is going to be a being in the world which you have made a decision to create. And because we live in a society where contraception and, and abortion you know, are available, we, we are making a conscious choice, which is massive and has not been the experience of people who've had kids in the past. Right. They've had kids mainly to help them get through the winter. You know, right. to have another person to harvest or, or, you know, and child mortality was just completely factored into the way they thought about children. Like Captain Kirk, Captain Kirk, Captain Cook had about, <laughs> Kirk probably with his lifestyle had quite a few kids as well. But Cook had about 14 kids and I think all of them died in infancy, like all of them. Yeah. Like not, not one of them made past five. But now we're in a totally different situation and I just find it really like, I've never really been able to get my head around the fact that another being would come into the world because of me, but also that being would suffer. And that's really, really hard. Yeah. Because it would, it would experience joy as well, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. great, and I love joy, but it would also experience suffering. Yeah. And there's no way to get around it. Yeah. If you come to this world, you're going to suffer. It's part of life. It's part of it. Yeah. It's part of it. So yeah. you've, you've, you've actually then consciously created someone's suffering. And the only, <laughs> the, the, the only question then is, is the joy that thing you've created going to outweigh the potential suffering and that's that to me is the nub of the whole occasion and if you have an optimistic view of life and i think particularly if you have a religious faith then it makes perfect sense i think then to have a kid because you can justify that because they'll be happy in heaven even because they're happy in, but once yeah. they've gone through this right. life and so that makes sense that most of the most of the religions advise us to have large families and to a certain extent, that's just a way of processing the fact of what you were referring to earlier on about high mortality rates. If you have lots of children and they yeah. die young, it's really, really sure. comforting to think that they go somewhere else uh, rather than they just die. Yeah, uh, sure. Kind of alone and, and sad, which is probably the reality. But, but, but like, I mean, that's interesting to me that you're, you're talking about it in those terms. I mean, I guess that's one of the biggest factors of my decision, my, mm. my decision in that... I guess the the two things that are the biggest persuaders to me, apart mm-hmm. from, you know, this thing about lifestyle choices, which I, I agree it, that you never have any choice of lifestyle, but I know that my personal, my personality will mean that I'm likely to give up things I want to do in order to put the child first. That is sure. not a, a requirement of parenthood. It's a fault in me, but it would be brought a, a fault exacerbated by mm-hmm. a child. But the the big things for me are... I don't want to be the kind of parent that I had mm-hmm. and I'm aware of how possible that is in mm-hmm. that I share I mean I share my mum's qualities lots of my mum's qualities I hopefully deal with them better than my mum does mm. 
but I don't know if I had someone who I was that as closely related to as a child, if I would be able to deal with them as well as I do now. And I wonder maybe if my mum is better. And in fact, I think it's pretty true that she is better at dealing with her behaviour mm. when she's not treating her own children. She's much better with other people's children. She's much better with, with people she's not related to. So there's that. There's the, there's the am I capable of not causing suffering to mm. that child? Sure. And then there's, is the world capable of not causing ch- mm. suffering to the child? And I'm not that optimistic. I look at the world and I, I see a messed up si- situation. Mm. I, I, I believe, I'm optimistic enough to think that you can't 100% say you can't improve it, so we mm. should try. Mm. But I, I, I don't think the, the, the likelihood is that we will make a better world. Mm. And so do, do I want to bring a child into a world where, you know, it, massive environmental catastrophe, mm. like the, all of the systems of hierarchies and oppressions and all of those things that, mm. that, that, that fuck me off in, in, in my life now. Like, do I want to bring a child into, into that? Like, that's, those are the two biggest reasons why I don't want to mm. have a child. Um, which is not to say, you know, that I judge people for having kids. They, mm. they might be right. There might be hope. Um, so I'm all in favour of other people. Well, to it is an act of hope to have a kid, isn't yeah, it? I mean, I that's so. that. It is an act of hope. It's an act of saying, you know, the the, the future. You know, it, it's an investment in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And so, okay, so talking of acts of hope, I guess. So you 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 make art, right? That is an act of hope, I guess. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I think it's very. I think I think as long as you're making stuff, you've still got some residual uh, optimism within you. I, I don't think I am a pessimist. I don't think I'm an I'm just I'm I'm not a man of extremes. No, so, no, that's so, true. That's so um, I I I mean I have been influenced a lot by pessimistic philosophy, which which is what this kind of discussion goes back to, which we're having. I mean Schopenhauer's the man who really kind of crystallizes this. You know, I mean he's not exactly uh, <laughs> he's not exactly a pro-feminist uh, writer, Schopenhauer, but he did write very interestingly about why people have kids. Um, yeah, I I think. I think as lo- as long as you're still creating, you've still got hope, uh, and the process is is an act of hope, really. And it's funny because like some of the writers I like, who, who really form me, like Kafka and Beckett, are ostensibly very pessimistic authors. But I think the fact that they were writing about their take on the world, and going and writing a lot about it over 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 a time, um, I think I think that showed that they hadn't. They hadn't completely embraced the vision which their books are getting across. Right. So it's like a paradoxical element to it. Yeah, really. yeah. I mean, Beckett, Beckett's work basically reiterates across a huge amount of different artistic media that life is not really worth living, and this is a man who lived to eighty-three. <laughs> you know, so you, you had a, Sam had a fairly decent crack at it if he didn't if if he thought it was that utterly hopeless. Yeah. You know, I think the real despair is when you stop. Right. It's when people you just just got nothing more to say or nothing, or, or but that also happens because people just kind of feel that they've expressed what they they had to express. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. So w- w- when did you like when when do you remember deciding or like coming across the idea of making stuff? It was always stories. It was always telling stories. It was always. Um, I'm an, I'm I'm not I'm funny because I'm not an only child because I've got three half brothers and a half sister but I was because they're all quite a bit older than me my brother left home just about the time I was born right so he would come back a lot from university and from work and things so I'd see him a lot but I would also be on my own a lot 
and it's um, kind of more of I guess it's more of an uncle kind of feel to it when they're older I have older old, quite older siblings and mm. I always think of them as kind of almost like they were aunts in my childhood like not in my not I'm not saying that I don't relate to them as mm. a sibling but also they have that kind of role there's a different role of close siblings do you know what I mean sure. you, you share childhood together whereas yeah an older sibling is someone who observe like they they've got the knowledge or the not knowledge but but that's you look up to them to to work out some shit about where you are I think my brother was going through, I remember him in my childhood just going through the kind of boozy lad 20s. Right. You know, he would show up with his kind of student mates. And I want, remember once they took me to the American Adventure, which is an American themed. I'm from Nottingham, uh, for, the sh- for the record. Um, American themed theme park, which is now closed, actually. And uh, they, they took me there and they didn't take me on any rides because I just wanted to drink. But they did buy me a, an inflatable hammer. Right. Uh, that was the only thing and uh, then the inflatable hammer got lost a few days later and I remember my dad saying to my brother look you took him to American events here you didn't take him on any rides you got him a hammer and now you've lost the hammer <laughs> <laughs> I remember right. that, that, that that was a kind of vignette of, yeah. of sort of where, where I come from <laughs> um, but yeah I, I think it is a different relationship but I think I think it's I think it is now quite a brotherly relationship because we're both grown up right you know, I think that's that, how it works. That difference yeah. kind of fades out. Yeah, it's it's like all this stuff, isn't it? When you're at school and someone's three years older than you, it's massive. Seems like and it then, makes a difference. And, yeah. and then you you meet them and you hang out, and it's not even a, a concern. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So you were like you. So you. So you were effectively an only child. I was. A, I was effectively an only child in the amount I was on my own, and I definitely was very absorbed in my own creative world and reading a lot as well from yeah. a very young age. Yeah, and I mean, and when do you remember, like, sort of taking, like, so you're taking in the influences when you're reading. When Mm. do you, when do you remember, like, first sort of pushing out your own view on the world? Well, I remember the most, the most significant thing was like everything I read growing up was like fantasy and science fiction. I absolutely loved it. But then there's a guy called David Eddings. Yeah, you you remember? I've I've read all of his books. Well, he wrote one book which was a serious novel, but he was trying to set himself up as a serious novelist. I remember. I'm not making a distinction between, but I mean, he was writing straight literary fiction as opposed to genre fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the amount of sci-fi I've read, I would not look down on sci-fi. No. But um, he did have a couple of books at the beginning of his career before obviously the sci-fi thing started developing for him and he wrote a book called The Losers yeah, do you remember this I've book? Read book you've yeah. read that book yeah. well that book was incredibly important for me because it was me working through David Edding's back catalogue and then he'd written this novel which was about these weird people living in an apartment yeah. block I think there's a kind of Jesus thing which goes yeah, on in it as well kind of... yeah but it wasn't science fiction but I read the book and it was more exciting to me than all the science fiction stuff and that was a really crucial moment because it's like, wait a minute, if I strip away all this kind of stuff, all the galactic adventures and, and different races and everything, and there's just a story about some people, weird people living in an apartment block, which I would understand less of as like a 12-year-old when I read it than, than right. there's all this genre Tourist, stuff because yeah. I had no compass for it whatsoever. Right. Uh, and I just thought, well, I'm, I, I want to read more stuff like this. Now, David Eddings hadn't written much more stuff like that. 
but a lot of other people had. And from then I started getting into Conrad. He came really, because again, there's a sort of adventure element to his stuff. Yeah. But it's also, so that what happened is it, it became kind of genre literary fiction, Sherlock Holmes. Right. And then it became just like literary fiction. And then by my mid-teens, it was like Camus and Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and right. all this, all this the really big, big all this big yeah. stuff, you know. And the Russians mainly. I was really obsessed with Russia for some reason. But My dad's pretty obsessed with that stuff. Um, and he's an NHL too, so maybe that's a, maybe that's a thing. <laughs> we we like, just we, need we, these huge. You need the time. But uh, although you know, I mean, I I read my I read the Lord of the Rings a lot of times, mm. which kind of is, was unnecessary after the first one. So maybe I would have been better off moving on to War and Peace and uh, and Crime and Punishment rather than just repeating the Lord of the Rings yet again. Um, but yeah, so 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 you got into that stuff, and then did you what you started writing? Yeah, stuff I was like I was writing. I was right. It was again kind of an imperceptible shift between like I was literally writing like. I had this st- series I wrote called Louise, right? Uh, it wasn't the girl Louise, it was spelled L-U-I-Z-E. And he was basically ripped off from the meme machine from 2000 AD, the guy with the dial on his head, if you remember that. Yeah, I do. Um, <laughs> but he, I just basically nicked him and wrote this huge kind of series. But then I remember there was one which I worked out, because my, my stuff was really violent, like really, really violent. But I worked out in one of these Louise books, which was called Dream Lace, right? Uh, I worked out, I'm talking about, I'm about, 10 now right I've gone back a bit I worked out that no one had actually died in it and that was a huge step forward for me as a writer because <laughs> I'd written something which which was without blood wow and yeah. so there was a f- fading out and then and then I was writing a lot in in my mid-teens and then and then there were various things like I had a trip to New York a bit later when I was 17 and then I wrote a story and that was that was in a kind of local competition and and then things kind of yeah and and I started doing stand-up around then as well right and so, what, why why did you start doing stand up? Why is that Because um, up until this point, it sounds like you're going, you know, down the heart, the the, the the literary fiction route, and then yeah. suddenly you're standing on stage telling jokes. It's a very very different thing. Well, it's always run it's it's always run parallel because what happened when I was about eleven, I was offered the chance to compare the senior citizens' party at school. <laughs> so uh, this was before before Camus. So yeah, I did it, and I, I kind of worked with some friends doing it as well. And I wore one of my mum's waistcoats. I remember a very sparkly waistcoat with gold buttons, and there was a lighting failure at the um at the senior citizens party uh these these amps blew and all the lights went down so they pushed me out onto stage and said tell a joke so i told a joke about a horse which is one of the few jokes i knew it absolutely destroyed they loved it and i got invited back the next year so i think i ended up doing the senior citizens party five times and then and then went on i hadn't written any material the first time i wrote my own material was when I was 17, which is when I entered the So You Think You're Funny competition. And then I did, uh, then I, I got to the semi-finals of that. So I was quite, um, that was like my first gigs with my own stuff. Um, again, unrepresentative. And uh, yeah, that was when, again, my brother was involved in that because he was, he was one of the few people who were there at that first gig. I remember him, I did so well, he took me out afterwards and bought me a McDonald's. Excellent. So that, that was success. That is success. <laughs> at that age. At a certain age, that, that is age, success, yeah. yeah. So I mean, right? So you, so you, so during your teens, you both you got into both writing and comedy. Yeah, but and it's always kind of been parallel, and I've always been trying to decide which one I should do and which one I should leave, or if I do both of them. So it's first been a question which I have been dealing with for about twenty years now. Right. I mean, and, and mm. you're, you, you know, you you don't just write fiction as well you mm. write plays you write uh, screenplays as we've as yeah, touched on yeah. so you you've got you, you, you're 
you're a little bit like me. I've got lots of different things I do mm. and I spend a lot of time wishing I was still doing that thing that I haven't mm. got time for anymore or that thing that I haven't got mm. time for anymore, but also just trying to work out which is my actual strength. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I mean, you, why do you do so right in so many different areas, do you think? I think um, I think just about everything I'm writing or trying to write at any given moment is funny. Right, Like okay. I mean, that's that's such an overwhelming unison. Like, it's trying to work out uh, how, how to how to be funny. I don't think I've I think I've tried writing serious stuff, but then it's just kind of become funny. That's interesting because all yeah. of your literary reference points, though, but are the, serious. But those guys are really funny. Beckett's really funny. Well, Beckett's hilarious. Kafka's yeah, really so. funny. Yeah, um, that's true. He's not as funny as people think he is. If you read him in German, he's much more official. But the um, but the uh, the concepts of Kafka are often very very funny. No, that's fair. Yeah. Um, I remember reading his story. He did that story. What was it? What's the one with the monkey, the educated monkey? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, it's, this monkey makes a report, and they've taught him to speak. Uh, I remember reading that in German, but I hadn't. I didn't know the German for monkey, <laughs> so, so I just thought it was this really boring story about this guy <laughs> who was talking. I mean, I really lost the. Uh, the so the the perils of re- trying to trying to learn foreign languages. Um, I I think that. One thing I feel strongly is that it's... I, I think it's very healthy to move about forms, and I think we're very decorous in England about what people can do or are allowed to do. Yeah, no, you know, I, you know, I agree with that. This is the Brian Eno thing of, like, he sa- he says on a train, people say, what do you do? He says, oh, I'm a music producer. They go, oh, great. He goes, oh, and I'm a painter. Oh, and I'm a, a, a musician. And then they, their face kind of sinks as he lists through everything. But why the hell not? Yeah, why not? Sure. If you can, if you can do stuff and it keeps you fresh, why not? The hardest part of all this is within comedy because comedy in the UK, as it is in London at the moment, is kind of set up for people to keep doing the same thing, and it's not just doing the same thing, but doing the same small bit of material. Like I've spent the last year developing ten minutes of really good comedy, and what I'm now supposed to do is spend a year doing the same bit of ten minutes of comedy until everybody has seen it, you know. Uh, and I would much rather just write a load more comedy and just keep keep throwing it out. But there's just not enough spaces where that can happen in London without people without losing face or somehow descending in the pecking order which everyone is carrying around in their heads. Right. And I mean, so I mean, and I guess another part of you, like if, you, if we're not separating art and, 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 and life, which is mm. which is fair enough, uh, is languages, right? I mean, yeah. you 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 live. So you've already mentioned that you've read things in German. Yeah. I know you lived in Berlin before you lived in London, right? Yeah. I mean, wh- when did languages come into your life? That was later. That was later. That was uh, in my early twenties. Uh, I was at Oxford, and I was everything I was reading was in German, like translated from German. So I was like, I'm going to learn German. And uh, I come from. I'm not Jewish, but my grandfather was Jewish, so there was a lot of anti-German sentiment in my family. And I think something in that made me want to understand Germany a bit better. Right. Um, so I moved out there when I was 21 and I came back when I was 31. So 10 years. 10 years. Five years. Five, it took me five years to get fluent and I really enjoyed the process. So I, I learned French to fluency as well. I work as a tour guide, as I said earlier. So I, I'm pretty much every summer in France. And then I have um, a level in Russian, which is basically da- down to two ex-girlfriends and then some private tuition. So it's not, it's, that side of it is not 
anything to do with intellect. Uh, it's just to do with commitment to it. Okay. I mean, it's just literally patience and, yeah. be, and being there. Because this is the myth we have about learning languages in this country. When I say that, I speak, um, you know, three languages fluently. English is one of them. Uh, oh, you must be clever. No, 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 no. If, if, it's just will. It really is will. Appropriate enough for German. But it's just, it's just, it really was just sticking out here. I, I used to go and teach English and I would have a book with me and the train journey there was one hour and back was one hour. I'd write out every word I didn't know in the book. And then I would colour code them for dirty and das. And it's just, and, and, and like a lot of people told me I wouldn't learn it or, you know, it was very slow for a long time. I couldn't talk, but I just, just stuck at it. So it was a real, it was really interesting. Um, I was pretty fanatical about it, to be honest. Like, if you'd have met me in my early 20s, there wasn't much else I was trying to do than get fluent in German. I mean, I'd moved to Germany. I was taking German class. I was refusing to speak to people in English if they spoke to me in English. Not English people, obviously, but, but Germans. <laughs> I like the idea of you yeah. refusing to speak Nein. to English people. <laughs> Dave, <laughs> auf Deutsch bitte. Yeah, but it worked. And that's where I get my livelihood, you know, for, from translation and stuff. Right. And so you translate what? Written, written yeah, stuff? Yeah, I translate written stuff. I'm applying to do an MA in interpreting. Uh, for this year. Oh, so, right, that's cool. So, yeah, so, I mean, I see that as the future of my my employment as well, just developing that, trying to get the Russian sorted out. And then I'm finished. <laughs> Once the Russian's there, it's finished. That's You're enough. not going to go for any more? I'd rather, I'd rather keep the ones intact. I've always, I like Italian very much, and I would like to learn. I mean, it's just such a... If you get if you get interested in languages, I mean, there's no end, you know? Yeah, yeah. There's just hundreds and hundreds. Well, yeah. So... And then once, you, once you've got all the current ones, there's a few sort of semi-dead ones you can learn to keep them alive. I think Sanskrit would be quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, so you moved to Berlin when you were 21. You stayed yeah. there for 10 years. Yeah. So I guess your writing and your comedy development happened mostly as an yeah. adult in, in Germany. Yeah, that was, the, that was, the, that was really the, the making of me, such as it is. Um, I got loads of stage time. And I was I was running the first ever alternative comedy night in Germany. Like I had to explain to them what alternative comedy was. Wow! They thought it was really political, which is true. Like alternative comedy originally yeah, was yeah, yeah. really political. Um, now it's just talking about bollocks, isn't it? That's that's where alternative comedy is now. Uh, but it it was called Kafka comedy, appropriately enough, and it was in West Berlin. And I used to say it was Germany's best comedy night, named after a dead Czech writer. And we used to have half the show in German and half the show in English. So we'd have a, an act come on, do English. Weren't necessarily, a, a, they could be German. So we had a lot of Germans who did English and then English people came on and go Germany. And I hosted it in, in both languages. So that's the way to get your language skills up, host a, host a comedy night. Uh, and, that, and actually, when I talk about something like that, I think that's actually more interesting than what I would have done if I'd have come to London and just like hosted a comedy night here. I actually think that I yeah. was really privileged to be in that position. As a, I was probably about 25 by then. And that night ran and uh, yeah, I mean, and then the scene in Berlin started to really develop because people were coming over all the time and it's got bigger and bigger. And I actually then, I, I hosted more nights. I performed a lot. I had a solo show, which I toured. I toured all around Germany. Uh, so far, I've performed in eight countries. I will perform in my ninth later uh, next month, Spain. Um, 
where I will be the headliner in a show. But apparently the Spanish for headliner is El Coño, which I was informed means the cunt, (laughs) which is a really, really appropriate... uh, I quite like that. Yeah, you've takes, come for it, takes, the evening. it takes the edge off yeah. uh, the whole idea of headliners pisses me off in lots of ways. So yeah. I quite don't mind that. Yeah. Well, you get all these absurd things on in London, like open mic level. Like the, we've got double headliners tonight. Okay. Right. <laughs> That's kind of paradoxical again, oxymoronic. Well, being the headliner in London often means as well that you're the person who has the least audience of the night because p- people leave early in London. It's interesting. Mm. It's interesting. I didn't expect that because, uh, I mean, I've not lived in London all my life and I've mm. certainly not been in the arts scene in, in London all, mm. all my life. So it's kind of, it's been surprising to me how early, and it shouldn't surprise me because as someone who lives in London, I do sometimes leave early from gigs because Jesus is a long way home and blah, 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 all the reasons they get, they have. I just didn't expect other people to be that kind of, un- uh, like, I thought everybody mm. was kind of like, Cool. I thought everyone was cool and I wasn't cool, but it turns out nobody's cool. Everyone slinks off from the, from the shows early. So yeah. the London headliner is someone basically trying to, suck some life out of an emptying room <laughs> that's that's the privilege of the of the London yeah head. unless they're, unless they're a big name and then of course people will stay people stay yeah. and that's why if you're booking a night you try and get a big name for the end because mm. you want people to stay as much as anything else sure but every time I've got a big name for stand-up tragedy or if you whatever big big name means quite often they ask to go on first mm. uh, for, the, for the reason of they want to go home <laughs> so so it goes but so I mean so you 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 had ten years of being doing comedy in in Germany. Mm. I mean, and then you moved to London. I mean, what's mm. what's the difference, and and why did you make that move? Well, it was a big decision because I'd got to a point where I was of all the artistic things I've done, I'd I'd become successful with comedy in Germany in the sense that I was getting quite decent money and touring around, and you know I was really. It, it's a long slog comedy setting setting yourself up yeah and um i was very aware that if i came back to london i'd have to do it all again but i just felt that i had en- i had reached the end of my act basically like i had written all the material my, my act was totally what you'd expect it to be over there it was hey don't you think germans are a bit funny and then going in minute detail into german culture um you know, what what would be an example of the kind of thing I'd talk about. I'd talk about stuff like when you make a joke in German, you're supposed to smile afterwards. <laughs> it's, it's funnier if you uh, if you're not listening. There's there's a, there's there's a, a smile there's, there's a which smile I've done, involved. but that would but because you do actually do that, so you just kind of recognise that, and then it would be contrasted yeah. with the kind of English straight face when you're telling a joke. But stuff like that, I I got like two minutes out of that, and then over over the time, I had about an hour, but. It was like it was like a lever I could always pull because I knew the language. Right. I, I could just pull that, and everyone I knew in the comedy scene I was in was doing that to a greater or lesser extent. I was probably doing the most because my German was, with all respect, one of the best uh, Germans around. So I just felt, well, if you keep doing this, um, you're basically going to be a novelty act for the right. for the rest of your life. Let's bring in the the, the British guy who to, speaks uh, German, yeah, to, to to make fun of us. To make fun of us, and they loved it. They loved yeah, a, yeah, good, yeah. a good a good la- a good tongue lashing. And I I was more I was more critical than yeah I, than that. I did go into the kind of really dark stuff in yeah. Germany and stuff like yeah. that. Right. But then okay. I always then I always had to pull it back pretty quickly. Yeah. So I just thought, well, I want my comedy to be about everything and I want to really 
do as much as I can. So I won't, I'll, I'll go back to London. And the other factor in it was my parents getting quite old. Right. So I wanted to be a bit closer to them. Right, because yeah. that's something we've talked yeah. about before, yeah. um, off mic in, in a completely different house, about yeah. how we both have kind of older parents. Yeah, sure. My, my dad's 75, my mum's 68. So, yeah, and I'm, I'm very close to them. So, And I think they have appreciated it, although whether they actually see me more or not is a bit of a moot point because I'm <laughs> in London and they're in Nottingham. Right, and you're, trying to, and you're trying to build a whole career up from scratch again. From and, scratch and again. And that takes time and gets in the way of seeing people. Well, I am kind of still sponsored by the Germans because just about all my income comes from contacts in Germany and translation. Uh, right. I'm just hoping the euro gets a bit stronger sometime soon. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And, I mean... Right, I mean, and what about? But I mean, you, so you lived in what in Berlin all that yeah, time? Yeah, I, mean, I, lo- I love Berlin. No, I did. So I lived in um, Southwest Germany for just under two years as well in Freiburg, which is ah, the right. capital of the Black Forest. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of Freiburg. Yeah, I mean, I've got I've got friends uh, in Germany, and I've got mm. German friends, uh, mm. and you know, expat or whatever we want to call it, mm. migrant friends, <laughs> and so I've been to Berlin a few times. And I love it. I mean, it's mm. like. I love it more than London. I mean, in a way, mm. I would like to live there in some ways. Although I don't know how I don't know how I could plug into mm. into into that. Like I don't have the German. I guess I could learn it, but I, mm. I, I've built a lot of stuff in this country. Mm. But I do love that city, and I mm. wish actually I had the money to go and visit more often. Although mm. from what I hear, things people are saying it's changing its feel than it mm. than it did. I don't know what seven years ago when I when I probably was last there. Mm. I mean, what what. what you know, what did you think of Berlin? Like, what, what, what? Describe, I guess, for people who don't know Berlin, what it's like. Well, I mean, it's coming up unbelievably enough. It's coming up to eleven years since I went there for the first time, and I can remember very, very clearly what it looked like when I first got there, um, which was very cold. It was February two thousand four. We're talking about very cold, very bright, um, and very spacious. Lots of width in the city wide roads and uh not as many people as london and not as much bustle uh quite green lots of parks great biking infrastructure and quite ugly not a not a pretty city at all not much pretty architecture very modern in its architecture which is obviously because it got flattened in in the early 1940s so uh i felt really excited by it as a place as soon as i went there and i have no idea why i specifically chose Berlin. I think I saw it in a film when I was a kid. I think I saw the Siegesäule, which is the the famous column, gold-tipped column. It's in one of the Wim Wenders films the with the angels. Yeah. <laughs> um, wings, the, wings of Desire. But, but is it in the first one? Because there's the far away so close, the second one as well. Oh, I haven't seen that. It's awful. It's one of the worst films ever made. Don't spoil the memory of Wings of Desire. I love that. Yeah, it's a beautiful film. Um, and you got the the street of the seventeenth of June, the long the long thoroughfare which goes to the Brandenburg Gate, and I think I'd seen that in a in a film, which is why I went out there. Um, yeah, and I just really loved it, and I loved the sense of openness of you could just do things really mm. easily at that time, and that was definitely the case. That was the case all the way. Uh, I was living in, in in Berlin. It was really easy to like set up a comedy night. And you know the overheads are the overheads are low, right? Um, and they're still fairly low, but they're not as low as they were. No. I think I think what's definitely happened is that the expat thing in Berlin is less connected to Germany than it used to be. Now it's much more of a kind of 
colony of people from London and New York who came up, who come over. They don't learn German anymore, so you would be absolutely fine to live in 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 <laughs> Berlin and not speak a word of German. In fact, these days it's pretty much the done thing to do that. But I was there at a stage. As my friend Drew said, he used to have a joke in his set. He goes, I've been in Berlin so long I can speak German. So right. it, it really kind of sh shifted in that. And I remember it was stuff like, I'm not really into the whole gentrification debate because I think places change, you know, and, and I know it's very painful if you're in that particular area, but I don't find it a debate I've really got anything interesting to contribute to. I can only say that it was it was things I, I I would go into a shop by the end and they wouldn't speak German or that there would be a frozen yogurt shop which was called frozen yogurt in like next to me and stuff like right. that so what the problem was for Berlin and it, this was none of the reasons why I left because right. I had a nice place and I could live my life as I wished and there's a lot of Berlin which is not like that but the the way I saw it as an outsider was uh that Berlin was instead of becoming this really interesting being this really interesting mix, it was becoming a slightly cheaper version of London and New York, right? Rather than its own thing. That's what I hear. Yeah. I mean, why? That's what is exciting about Berlin. When mm. I when I went there mm. was, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't there for as long as you. I was just there mm. visiting friends, and sure. of course, when you visit friends, you see what your friends are into rather mm. than uh, rather than the bigger, wider communities or whatever. Mm. But I. Yeah, the cheapness of everything, the mixing mm. of lots of different cultural like influences, like mm. the Turkish community, like everywhere you mm. went, like there was, you know, coffee shops. I guess that's the same here, but mm. they're all chains here, mm. and so like that, those kind of things, and the graffiti as well was really exciting to me, and the history. Yeah. I mean, like the you know the 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 Jewish memorial, like the mm. architecture of that, like that, 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 I mean, I know I didn't go into the, into the museum, although I probably should have done because of the fact that, uh, I, I just couldn't take that level of depressingness that particular day, but I, the actual monument where you're walking through and it's like a maze and it kind of, it, 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 those sorts of things really struck me about that city. Mm. Like the, yeah, the, the kind of precise precision, and I've got like family in Bonn as well. In, mm. in, so it's very, and that's a very different Germany. It is a very different, place. <laughs> it's quite, quite an odd place. Bonn. Right, I mean, well, it's even it's not even Bonn. It's Bad Godesberg there, which mm. is the best de uh, death metal title, I reckon. Bad Godesberg should be a should be a death metal uh, band. But but yeah, I mean, so I've seen a few bits of of, of Germany, mm. but. Berlin itself, it seems like is 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 like London. It's mm. its own thing. It is its own thing. But my my I have a friend who said the people who couldn't take West Germany moved to Berlin. You know? <laughs> uh, the one thing I want to say is just just in reference to the what I was saying about um, you know becoming less interesting and that mix you'd really experienced. When I moved to Berlin in, in two thousand five, I moved a year after I'd come to first year. It's twenty percent unemployment. Right, and it's a very poor city. Yeah, no, so so true. so if it's the case that in order to create some business, it has to change and it has to lose some of that character. I think for most people in that city, that's a fair trade-off. If there are frozen yogurt shops for people to work in, and, sure, you know. So it's it's not it's not it's just it's not enough just to kind of say, oh, Berlin was great in the old days and kind of peaked in the late two thousands, and maybe the experience of being in Berlin for me personally was the most interesting at that time. But also what's happening now is that money and companies are moving to Berlin. Yeah, but it's a complicated one though mm. because as that happens, all those mm. kind of things happen, mm. like Berlin, as far as I understand it, in the past was 
you know, not in, not in the not in the not in the historic past, but in the recent mm. past, was a place where um, if you didn't have very much money, you could basically get by. Yeah, Whereas sure. what happens when money moves in and people's mm. lifestyles and lives improve mm. yeah. is that if you haven't got money mm. within that then you are kind of much worse off than you were before everybody started to rise. So so I'm not, I'm not saying that mm. it's clear cut either mm. way, and I, sure. I accept there's more complications sure. either way, but one of the things that appealed to me about Berlin when I went there is it felt like a place, where you, you know, my, my, my friends who lived there didn't have much money, but they mm. could have a good life. A good life. Yeah, and sure. that is a great thing. Sure. But I suppose... Um, there's so much of that city, which is. Um, I hope this isn't a spoiler, but we're in East. Can I say we're in Leytonstone? Yeah, I have you can say that. we're in Leytonstone, right? There's a lot of Berlin which is very like Leytonstone in terms of yeah. like, and and the expat thing wouldn't even go there. They'd be like, why would we go to like Moabit or why would we go to Reinickendorf or why would we go here? Because you'd need to speak German there, and because you'd need to, uh, you need to actually live in Germany. So it seems to me that this kind of expat change is happening in such specific parts of the city. Uh, so far it has been it is expanding a bit but it's yeah I mean there was for example there was a meeting of there was a meeting in a district of Berlin um, called Kreuzberg which is one I used to live yeah, a I couple know, of years yeah, it's, yeah I was very happy there I used to call it punk retirement home um, <laughs> uh, they had a meeting about what are they going to do about all the tourists because they hate the tourists so much there was like a, a and that that isn't necessarily uh, people who've lived in Kreuzberg for a long time. That's that is also just people who are hostile to foreigners, and there's a real seam of that in German culture, mm-hmm. and a real differentiation between good foreigners and bad foreigners. Mm-hmm. I was specifically told I am a good foreigner, mm-hmm. which is because I'm white. Yeah, sure. You know, because I could I could just about pass for a German. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I, absolutely. I'm not. I'm not suggesting the the. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like Germany, like pretty much every white, white, white majority European yeah. country has a massive racism problem. Sure. Um, and 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 people like hate foreigners, even as they also make money from those foreigners. Sure, so there sure. are all these kind of complicated contradictions. And Germany is an interesting place for, mm. for to deal with the, the structural racism within the in their in their midst because they also having having been at the worst edge of that mm. are also very very aware of that and trying to like mm. a lot of germany a lot of people in germany sure. are the opposite way like of mm. like of like we can't even like and it's still racism if you can't mention race but there's that whole kind sure. of like you know there's like i was really surprised at, like that there are sort of it's illegal to there are certain words you can't sing certain things you can't mm. there there's there are actual laws in place to stop you from saying things not mm. not not things i would support people saying but i i probably wouldn't have laws stopping people saying things mm. regardless of what those terrible things might be mm. so it's yeah it's a, i mean I'm, that's the thing you go visiting you just get the fun bits right and so you've lived that's there that's true i've lived, i went all. i went deep 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 into germany <laughs> like i was like a in the diving bell you know right. going down and down going yeah, right, going right. into all these weird cuz you know they've got their own culture and traditions and history and and it wasn't but there is, you know, that that film by Rossellini's Germany in in Year Zero, which is made in 1945, which is um, filmed in Berlin, which is almost completely destroyed at that time. And there's that, you know, Year Zero idea we went so wrong. But the Third Reich is like a 12 year interval in, uh, you know, thousands of 
thousand year history and more yeah, than absolutely. that. So there's a lot there's a lot of tradition and ritual and it's kind of weird because Germans feel so conflicted about expressing their national identity in any way. Right. But it is all still there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they are still gonna behave in a way which is really influenced by these traditions and ideas. You know, legally, the German legal system was restored to what it was before the Third Reich, the uh, Interregum. So if you've ever dealt with German legal processes, which unfortunately I've had to on a few occasions, mainly people trying to con money out of me and stuff, uh, it's, you know, you, you're just really then aware, okay, I'm, I'm now dealing with a different tradition. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and that's an interesting thing as well. I, 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 in a way, I, I mean, I, no one's got it sorted out. No one's worked it out. But I, I understand being conflicted about your history mm. a lot more than I, I understand kind of people from from England who don't seem to be conflicted by their history, which is mm. no less bloody pretty much than the Third Reich. Like mm. this idea that, that that was the worst we've ever had mm. ign- ignores and erases all of these really terrible things that empires of all kinds have done. Mm. So it's a really like I think you know we should people should be conflicted by history. Mm. We particularly white people should be conflicted about history. But but uh, but it's interesting to hear that that being conflicted about it isn't enough. It doesn't mm. it, it, that that's not enough to learn from the, the the mistakes from the past. You just find new new kind of ways to make the same mistakes. I guess talking about like yeah tradition and 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 britishness and englishness and stuff mm. i mean you went to oxford right mm-hmm. uh, which is like the bastion of all of those things like yeah. i mean at the moment everyone's fighting over statues and stuff like that which i you know and i know which side i'm on uh, it's the side that gets rid of the statue but i mean there are other opinions and whatever but the but but you went to oxford but you are not as far as I understand, of the of the background of most people who go to Oxford, right? Well, when I was there, it was 50-50 state public, okay. uh, and I was state. And I, I met someone recently who'd just got out of Oxford, and they now said the proportion was much more state. So they've got it up to something like 65% okay. or something. So that I'm, I'm glad that process is, is going on, because state schools are, what, 90% or something? So, I mean, it should be representative i went to a place called mansfield college which was where basically all the public school kids who who kind of didn't get into the bigger colleges went and then loads of state school kids so they were kind of public school kids walking around looking kind of like lost aristocrats after the russian revolution you know the mensheviks sort of going around looking looking forlorn uh so it was very unrepresentative in that um but yeah i mean i i I come from a background of privilege in the extent that I, I was my mum paid my fees at Oxford or my parents did. Right. So I mean that's still privilege. I didn't qualify for a student loan. Sure. That but is. I but I but I did come from a state school background. Yeah. Right. And 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 what do you, what do you feel about Oxford as a institution as a thing that's been a part of your life? Um, I feel that it was the most negative part of my life by a considerable distance, and right. I find it difficult to uh, I find it difficult to separate my own idiocy at about 18 and what was the things about Oxford which were really bad and were encouraging people because I was like most people we did have a um, chat beforehand and Dave disclosed he was a dick when he was about That's 18. That's true, I was. And I was, I was a massive dick as well and really full of myself and definitely in need of 
being taken down a peg or two. But I find I found Oxford quite anti-intellectual, uh, certainly in what I was doing. I think I would have had a very different experience if I was gifted in maths or science. Because um, I think being gifted at English, I did English, um, for me it's kind of almost a contradiction in terms to be gifted in English because for me literature is about learning about life, is about understanding human beings, empathy. These are none of the skills which you developed when I had developed when I was 18. I've developed them through living and dealing with other people. So I might have been able to formally explain to you why some literature was interesting. But clearly, if I had been reading Dostoevsky, I hadn't understood the lessons of like crime and punishment or something, you know, that, that kind of like egotism and, and uh, self-absorption is not going to lead you down a, down a good path. So there's a lot of fireworks in, in how I was behaving. I think that it, it was just a very bitchy place and... Uh, yeah, it didn't really, it didn't do me any good and it took me a long time processing it. I have processed it really well now, I think, but I can't say I look back at it with any fondness. Not my own behaviour, which is a lot of... I was at Oxford with um, uh, Josie Long. She was quite, quite good. I was quite good friends with her, but again, I mean, my behaviour to her was quite alienating and so I'm, I feel quite bad about that. So if I ever see Josie, I'd like to apologise to her. So I can apologise here. Sorry, Josie. <laughs> That's fair enough. And, and so, did you do comedy at, at? I did. I did comedy with Josie. I mean, right. she, that's why because um, she gave me the Oxford Comedy Society to run, but I kind of ran it into the ground because I was having a nervous breakdown. Was the reason? I took. A, I had a nervous breakdown in my second year, and then I had to take a year out basically. So I went and worked for social services in Nottingham, which was uh, interesting. I talked about this at Stand Up Tragedy. Uh, you did. Uh, this is this is my uh, my descent, as it were. And then, uh, then I went to Berlin and then it started a kind of slow ascent. But I think what I really hated was this sense that Oxford was a dress rehearsal for the rest of English cultural life and that you would have stuff like the Cherwell student newspapers or the Oxford student and they would be behaving like the Daily Mirror and the Sun. Right. But there's no money involved. Right. You're just knifing people in the back because you're going to have to do that in your later professional career. Right. So you might as well get the training. And I mean, there was no element of critique at Oxford in how people were. It was just adoption of. I'm sure there was, and that should I should have been, I should have known about it because I was in kind of really hard left circles and, you know, workers fight and all this kind of stuff. But there wasn't any real critique of tradition and heritage and uh, status elitism um and that was yeah that was i had a big chip on my shoulder about that i think yeah i mean i mean that's an understandable chip to have on your shoulder but that's the complicated thing isn't it mm. you can have an understandable chip on your shoulder i think i had a an understandable tr- chip on my shoulder when i went to university too mm. uh different university but still like when people talk about oxford and cambridge and like separate that out from other universities that's in itself a little bit of a myth i mean lancaster where i went is a very well thought of university it's it, it, mm. it, it it's it's a form of privilege to go to any university let alone mm one of the better ones and mine was one of the better ones so this kind of false distinction between people who went to you know Oxford and Cambridge and people who went to other universities that's that's a bit of a myth I think but but I, I definitely had a justifiable chip I think on my shoulder but it doesn't mean I was I justifiably beha- I behaved justifiably about that chip yeah like that's the thing like that's the 
you, you can have justification, but it doesn't mean that you take it out on the right people either. That's the worst thing about it, that people go around with chips on their shoulder and then attack all the people who don't deserve it, not even the people who do deserve it. And when they do attack the people who deserve, deserve it, often they kind of undermine their own attack by doing it in certain kinds of ways. So. I think what really haunts me, though, is this idea that um, could I have learned how to deal with that sentiment and that kind of feeling like in my case like aggressively like I'm left wing and I'm going to be left wing and I'm at Oxford and you're not going to turn me into the establishment I'm just going to like I got really good marks in my first year and I remember someone saying to me and I reacted with the words can I still be left wing uh, wow and, and, <laughs> and they said yeah sure <laughs> it's a very bemusing statement why would it but that was how kind of pumped up pumped up I was about that but what haunts me is could I have got to the place where I realised that there are better ways to process these things without massively messing everything up and do you just naturally have to go through a period of being awful and obnoxious and difficult to deal with or do you not have the excuse for that and you you should never have a period where you really mess up in your life it's an interesting question and it becomes even more complicated by things like the fact that you know you're a man and that you're a white man right mm. so it's like there's this whole kind of thing about entitlement and like mm. some people have the freedom to fuck up yeah, some people absolutely. have the freedom to misbehave for years and learn these important life lessons and grow and change and other people don't and so there's all of those kind of things absolutely but then then again you know within this though often I don't think we think about like like you know women and people of colour also mess up as as, as young people there Absolutely. is a, a universality of that there is mm. a kind of sense that, that pretty much everyone's a dick at some point in their sure. growing up sure. it's just what kind of a dick what that dick results in like you know, if 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 me or you, particularly when you were at Oxford, if you got caught by the police in certain kind of situations, you'd probably get let off. That would not be the case if you were black in Oxford necessarily. Mm. It definitely wouldn't be the case if you were black in nowhere near Oxford. So it's it's it, it's all of those kind of com- complexities, I guess, around all of this stuff. I mean, what do you think? Do you think we are all like? Do you think it, do you think it's okay to go through a, a stage of dickness, or do you think that we should all? somehow achieve no dickness to begin with. <laughs> I think everybody has got to be given the allowance. I think the, I, th- <laughs> I, th- I think the problem is, as you say, there is, I, I, I totally agree that, for example, uh, let's say someone from an urban area who'd got a scholarship to Oxford and maybe had been the first person in their family to ever go to university. I think their margin for dickness has been kind of automatically limited than someone who's kind of doing it on their parents' dollar. And maybe, maybe at some point, part of my mind at that time I was like well I can afford to mess up I want to see I want to see what this looks like I want to set this whole thing on fire I want to see if I can alienate everybody from me which is what I did and then and then bring it back but at the same time like you're an episode of a TV show like yeah. that's basically what most TV like a, a series of Buffy she'll alienate everybody yeah. and then by the end of the series they'll all be friends again I was in many ways the Buffy of, of that time <laughs> apart from Buffy who was right. also the Buffy of right, that right. time uh, I think I think the 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 uh, the optimistic thing would be that everyone has got to be given the space to fuck up within within limits because you're you're trying to become something aren't you i mean you're trying you're you're trying on hats and and it's a it's a painful process and the the probably i think the most crucial part of that time of people's lives young adulthood is how they 
pull that off and it takes a long it takes a long time uh, but you do get there you know i think most people do get there they find some way of some way of being which suits them enough that it's a but it's a, a persona which they can wear that you know it's it's the kind of it's a mask but it but it's kind of grown into the skin as it were i think interesting stories what happens when people suddenly take a look at themselves many years later and they're like oh wait this doesn't fit anymore right this isn't who i am right because then i think it becomes because it, although we're talking about uh stuff which is difficult at any age there is going to be a bit more tolerance like my mum said to me in my early 20s when i was going to germany she said at this stage of your life you may try a few things which don't work out which is a good thing to say i think yeah um there is an expectation by that time of your life that you might be going down a few blind alleys but when you're settled and when you it is harder to change as you get older uh but you need to change then that that's a really interesting process again i think yeah i mean and i guess like one question i've got like in terms of when you talk about how you were quite hard left or yeah, whatever well, then i mean and i'm and i i, I I joined Militant Labour when I was 15, so hey, uh, I feel you on that. But I mean, you, I was from, I was brought up by left-wing people. Mm. Is that, that's not the case with you, right? No. I remember from our previous conversations. No, no, I'm, I would, I don't think my parents, well, my dad is a UKIP voter, so uh, he can, he can come on your podcast and explain that to, to you. But uh, I would say small C conservatism is the, the, uh, atmosphere, which I, which is not something I look down on. Uh, sure, that's well. That's an interesting thing I've I've talked to you about before. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in the fact that you don't look down on that. No, I don't look down on pragmatic conservatism. I don't look down on uh, Francis Bacon, uh, the painter. Someone asked him once, "Who who who did you vote for?" And he said, "Always always the right, because they make the best of a bad job." And I'm I don't look down on the kind of conservatism which says governments generally mess things up. So what you want is the least bad and you want a kind of pragmatic government which does the least amount of damage. You just disagree on which government does the least amount of damage. Yes, that is probably a really good way of putting how I feel about it. I think I, I don't... I also have a certain limited faith in just how much governments can do because I think the real change needs to come. Uh, not in the grassroots sense from people up, but I think people... It's the German thing again. Let's ban this book, but the ideas are still out there, you know? Let's make it illegal to deny the Holocaust. But then I've seen things in Germany where, like direct examples of anti-Semitism. Right. And that's what needs But that to kind happen. of creates that, absolutely. If yeah. you say to people, you can't be this thing, then people are going to start resenting that. And then... Well, taboo yeah. is a sexual idea, isn't it? Right. It, it, like, it's Tahitian, the word taboo or something, but it's a, it's a charm or something in your tribe, isn't it? The taboo. I'm not not need to look that up, but it, there's a there's a kind of like oh it's been banned there must be something in it yeah it's it's the Trump thing of saying the outrageous thing which, right which I've said it yeah you know and like because it's the the, the fact that it's forbidden gives it a greater air of truth and legitimacy so pragmatic thinking you support and I yeah I, I'm, I, I, do I, too, I, I'm right? a pra- I'm a pragmatist yeah <clears throat> I'm a pragmatist I think. Uh, I think I feel less of a pragmatist when I go to other countries. Uh, I, th- I feel less. Of, I recently visited Senegal in West Africa. I didn't feel like anywhere near as pragmatic there. Uh, don't don't ask me why, but it didn't feel like the the, the soil of Britain seems kind of infused with pragmatism. pragmatism. <laughs> yeah, I mean we haven't we haven't 
thank God, been killing each other in this country for a long time. Uh, and that, that has to continue. Um, I'm not happy about where the government is, but I have found over time that being in a state of anger about everything is... I, I can't work, I can't do stuff. I have to live my life in a kind of mood of optimism and delight, which is different from saying that I think things are good, because I don't think things are good, but I want to make the best of my time, you know, in, in right. life. Uh, and I find re- reading about the minutiae of what's going on in politics is not, not conducive to that. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I mean, and but so I mean, so you but you were hard left. I guess I was hard left. And like, what 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 did that look like? What was that? It looked like very thin on numbers. <laughs> that time. It was uh, it was I was really. It, I suppose they probably reminded me of the Church of England. You know, kind of thinning congregations and people maintaining the faith uh, in face of evidence. I just went to some meetings. I would read a bit of the literature. It wasn't. Uh, I, I marched uh, against various things. I mean, I when I went to uni, that was the very year they introduced student fees, and you know that's something I still think has got completely out of hand, and uh, and doesn't even make economic sense because you know, for example, to take Germany, Germany introduced some limited student fees, uh, and then just got rid of them, and their economy is the strongest in Europe, so. I think we can survive without the student fees. Sure, I'm, I, I yeah. definitely think we can get rid of student fees. I think I may, might have gone in the same year as you did, I think, uh, to uni. That makes sense. Are you, th- are you 34? I'm 33, so maybe uh, the, right. year, year after, the year the, after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you feel about that that kind of difference in generational approach then? Or do you think there's a difference in generational approach in your family? I mean, you're pragmatic and your p- parents are pragmatic, but broadly you lean in different directions yeah I, I feel like I'm I feel like it's helped me in a lot of ways I think it's been better in terms of creating material uh, about them I got a hell of a lot of material about my parents who's <laughs> <laughs> always growing this is the, the most amazing new thing my dad has told me is um, that for many years as he's gone to sleep he's been joining a tribe of pygmies in the Amazon, like he goes there like every night when he falls asleep, just about every night, and he's taught them to write, Whoa. and that he's saved them twice. He just comes out with this, and then oh. you, you kind of ask him the details, and then, and then I asked him before I came back to London, and he said they'd started annoying him, but he he knows he knows he knows that I'm a comedian. He knows this stuff is going to filter uh, in in some way, but there's a real. There's a real kind of dry humour which my dad has, which is a great bond, and it's a his his humour is a bit dafter than mine, but uh, it's a good bond. And with my mum, I find that there's there's common ground which we can which we can find. But it's also skilled me to be a kind of mediator. I think to have to to have to bring my opinion and uh, and present it in a way which is not an absolute in any way, or not something which can be taken for granted. I was very happy when Corbyn got elected that I was going back to Nottingham that weekend, because everybody I knew was kind of cock-a-hoop that Corbyn had got in, and I went back to the Shires and, uh, you know, was just faced with the times and how I was presenting it. And, you know, I mean, Corbyn's been difficult for me for different reasons as well, because of this Jewish background in my family, and I am very uncomfortable with the statements that he made about Hamas and, and Hezbollah. Right. I am very uncomfortable. And I'm very uncomfortable with the fact that people just kind of 
brush that away as if it's not a concern, you know. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some of the stuff you've posted about mm. that. I mean, there are conflicting reports on exactly mm. what was said, as far as I understand it. Um, I'm pragmatic, I guess, so I'm going to... Uh, uh, based on that, I think mm. Corbyn's the best of, of the options, but he's he, by no means... Like, my criticisms of Corbyn would mm. be very different from... Like, I don't think he's anti-Semitic. I, mm. I think he may have supported groups who are, mm. uh, and he may have done that for pragmatic reasons. Sure. Um, but I don't think he thinks, like... Like, I don't think he mm. thinks anti-Semitism is a good thing. But... No. Like, and, and, and as far as I understand it, he's, he's, he's doing really great stuff around, like, pushing back... Islamophobic views mm. that are rising in this kind of current climate. I mean, as much as anyone can, he he he, he screws his colours to the mast, mm. and that that I support. Mm. But you know, my my criticisms of Corbyn are, are much more like you know he still is actually like he's not as radical as everyone thinks he is because mm. because radical is is so much less radical these days. Mm. Um, th- those are my sort of thoughts because I mean I'm. You know, I'm a, I'm a pragmatic anarchist, so that's a, a, an interesting combination. That's, that's the best kind. No, I mean the the, 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 ha, the Hamas the Hamas quote from Corbyn is the the thing where he says our friends in Hamas and yeah. our friends in this book. Yeah. and that's there. That's a clip of him. No, saying. I know, but so but that, that that makes sense within the context of a guy who never thinks he's going to be leader of the Labour Party. Yeah, but I mean, saying our friends doesn't necessarily mean you're supporting everything about what those friends do. I mean, like mm. when you're looking, but it's at, a pretty severe. Like if I, you're my friend, Dave, but like. Let's say you supported a group, you know, let's say you came out with a statement that you were committed to the racial destruction of the Jewish people. Yeah. I would have trouble describing you as my friend. In, no, and that, that, would be, that would be a fair enough reason yeah. to, to stop. And I, I, I agree. I, I think it is a bit more, a bit more nuanced than that. But I think what, in the interest of just kind of clarity, I have a big issue when someone says Corbyn never said that and there's a video of him saying that. No, I mean, he definitely yeah. said that. Yeah. I think we, we can we can discuss what he meant. Yeah. He can discuss what he meant. Yeah. I think he said what he the, what he thinks he meant. Yeah. Um, and that also should be taken into account. And, and like you say, you know, one of the things that we should... I mean, I'm, he was much older than, than us when we were dicks, but yeah. you, you certainly could, are never too old to learn from the past and change your position or, yeah, sure. or realise that what you said in the past might have been too strongly worded as in, in support of organisations that are anti-Semitic. But Hamas is not just an anti-Semitic group. It's also a, a freedom-fighting group uh, for a group of people who are also being oppressed. So sure, it's a but, complicated but there's, there's lot, thing. Yeah, yeah, but in the, the charter of Hamas is basically commits them to... I don't them. disagree with yeah. that. I know that that is the case. Yeah, sure. But why... But we could take that out yeah. and their cause is completely just. Right. I mean, that's... and all, yeah. all, Although... And, and also, it's it's complicated. Like, why people would support that group. Yeah, like, sure. So if they're the only leadership and people are supporting it, then when you're attacking that leadership, you're not just attacking the leadership, you're attacking mm. all the people who are hoping that that leadership's going to help them. And, okay, mm. atrocities get committed and I'm... Uh, by, by oppressed groups, when they're pushing mm. back against that oppression often uh it's complicated I, I i'm not i'm not saying that i look at the middle east and go oh it's easy it's easy to solve this problem sure but i i mean i i i definitely think that like for example i don't have any friends that would say that they would get rid of like 
would would systematically kill all uh, Muslims. But I definitely have friends who are of Jewish uh, heritage who are like pro-Zionist, pro-Jewish state who who think that Palestine belongs to Israel. And mm. those people, I, I am friends with them, but mm. I do think that is quite a horrible like, mm. view. I, I, a hor- I, I, not even like just a, just a very like, it, it means that you're thinking of some people as not humans. Sure. And that I find problematic, uh, particularly from people who've historically been thought of as not humans by other groups. But hey, um, you're of Jewish descent, but not like fully, you don't fully identify with, with, with Jewishness. I'm not anywhere near Jewishness at all. So probably that's a debate best had by by other people. I would say. <laughs> <laughs> so the last, uh, the last, well, first of all, before I said, ask the last thing, I should say, it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you. Um, it always is actually a pleasure getting acquainted with you every time I meet you. And in fact, and I, I feel like if people have enjoyed the political section of this of this discussion, they should check out um, the episode of the Fail Better podcast that we were both in on the first day after the election. Um, and I hadn't slept for 24 hours or something because I, mm. I was teching a gig for that election. Um, and we were all in a very strange mood and that podcast didn't even follow its normal format. Um, so that's a, there's some interesting stuff we both say in that episode. Yeah, you can hear the hope draining out of our voices <laughs> as, as the podcast uh, progresses. Yeah, no, that was it's, and it's a really interesting moment to be captured on audio. I'm kind of it, it's interesting to me that that happened. Like I like the fact that that happened. Uh, yeah, I wish it had been on my podcast so that I could I could uh, own that that bubble. But at the same time, I'm very pleased if it's going to be on anyone's podcast, it should be Paulus and Dan's, yeah. which is a great podcast that I recommend. Um, and you've been on that loads of times as well. So. Twice. Well, yeah, loads of times in my head, <laughs> twice in reality. There we go. But yeah, you're like, the, well, because you live with Paula, you're the possible, like, you you may end up going on it loads of times just because people, you know, drop, people out. drop out. Yeah. yeah. So... Yeah, it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you. And the last thing I ask my guests uh, is, do you have anything to plug? I think the best way to find out what I'm doing is to follow me on Twitter. Right. At James Harris Now. And there's a, there's a link there to my blog, shoeleatherexpress.org. So, I mean, as we've discussed, I'm doing quite a few different things. So the seams of it are up there. I hope at some point the film might be online which would allow people to watch that. But yeah, follow me on Twitter. I have links to my gigs. I have links to all kinds of stuff going on. Great. And the, and I mean, I've, 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 I've misphrased the previous question. The, the last two, I say the last question that I ask people. And then after that, I say, and the last thing that I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Well, goodbye audience. It was a pleasure talking with you, Dave. Bye everyone. If you enjoyed today's conversation with a comedian called James and you'd like to have an opportunity to come and see me having a conversation with a different comedian called James live, I'm doing a live Getting Better Acquainted on the 28th of April at the Old Red Lion Theatre in Angel in London and I'm going to be talking to comedian, sketch writer and the brains behind a lot of the writing of the sketch group Casual Violence James Hamilton will be in conversation with me so do come along to that the tickets are £10 and will be available from the Old Red Lion Theatre website very soon if they're not available already that recording is part of Radio Man Late which is a season of 
podcast happening regularly at the Old Red Lion Theatre at nine o'clock to support the run of the show Radio Man, which is a new show by Felix Trench, all of which will hopefully raise money for the podcast series Wooden Overcoats. Also, I'm still recommending every episode that people go and listen to my solo show, What About the Men, Mansplaining Masculinity, which I recorded for the Stand Up Tragedy podcast, and it's the most recent one over there. Go and find that on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts go to hang out online and have a listen to it. Uh, Listen with care because it has some pretty serious subjects touched on in it like stand-up tragedy you can find getting better acquainted anywhere that podcasts go to hang out on the internet follow getting better acquainted on twitter at gba podcast like getting better acquainted on facebook you can follow me on twitter at goosefat 101 and remember there are lots of ways of getting better acquainted <laughs>